Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. How are we doing this morning, guys? Great, excellent, good. Yes, all right. I don't ask that just because, like, it's just something I do when I get up here. I, I do want to know. Obviously, we can't have conversations about it, but I uh, do want to know how you guys are doing. Uh, anybody do anything exciting for the 4th? Fireworks? Hot dogs? No? All right. Well, that's okay. I mean, I know the city outlawed a lot of the stuff. It's okay. Um, just want to say hi to our kids online. Um, we didn't get to do uh, the lesson this morning. Some of them are here, which is awesome. Um, but uh, like Emery, let me see if I can, Avery, um, man, Karis, Haddon, Alistair, um, who are your kids? Talia, yes, she's going to hate me for that. Uh, Emmeline, um, man, I'm forgetting names. The Healy kids, um, Elodie, uh, Adelaide, and then my favorite, of course, Ezra and Wyatt. Hi, guys. Um, sorry we couldn't have a lesson for you this morning, but thankfully you're worshiping with us. Um, thankfully you guys are here this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series for Gospel Formation. Uh, we've been walking through this uh, the last couple of weeks of what it looks like to be gospel formed. And so we are starting to land the plane um, in regards to this series. So we've got this week and then next week. Uh, and then we'll be jumping back into a uh, book of the Bible uh, following our summer series. So I'm excited for that. Uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians and walking through that as long as the Holy Spirit has us in that book. So if you guys want to get prepared and start reading that book and seeing what God would show you, uh, that'd be that'd be awesome because uh, then we're we're going to be following along and walking through that book. But this this morning, what we're going to be taking a look at is the motivation of our gospel formation. So if you remember the last couple of weeks, and if I can use this analogy, um, it's going to be a loose analogy. So forgive me if it doesn't fit completely. But like thinking about gospel formation, I tend to think about a building of a home, right? And so when we think about the building of a home, what has to come first? The foundation, the slab, right? If the foundation's off, then that house is going to fall. Uh, either slowly it's going to crumble or it's just going to completely crumble once you get everything up and weight starts to put pressure on that slab, right? And so that first week, the gospel foundation for us was the message of Jesus Christ. Right, the central theme of first importance, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, is the foundation of the gospel. And then the next week, right, when we think about building a house, we start thinking about framing. Uh, we start putting electrical wires into it, the HVAC unit, all this stuff that's going to be inside our walls. Uh, we start to build that house up in that way. And so how we looked at that second week was the means, or I'm sorry, the model through Philippians 2. Like our, our model of the gospel, and we saw that Jesus Christ in his humility, in his service, in his death and his resurrection is the model in which we should follow. And then thirdly, when we start to get through this house project, right, then we begin to put fixtures and trims and doors and countertops, right? And, and so that third week as we build this house is the means. What was the source in which, or what is the source in which we live our lives, in John 15, as Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. And so our source of life, our means in which we live gospel lives out is going to be by abiding in Jesus. And so this week, as we begin to finish this house, 
right? We're going to look at the motivation. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take a look at Romans chapter 12. And as you're opening there, again, I want to say that my building of the house analogy, even though we may end it next week and the house is now built, it doesn't mean for our own lives that it stops there. Gospel formation is always going to be relying on the gospel message. From beginning to end, this is our source of life. And so as we finish this series, it doesn't mean that our lives are finished with the gospel. We should be growing in it daily or abiding in it as we talked about last week. But this week we're going to talk about the motivation. And really what I want to do is I want to answer a question through Romans 12 this morning. So if, if Jesus is our motivation for living obedient to God's word and being transformed by the gospel, how do we do it? Right, that's what I want to answer this morning. So anybody that takes notes or type A like me again, like this is how I'm going to look at this text and I'm going to answer this question. How does this motivation happen? So looking at Romans 12, we see Paul's pattern of writing that we see throughout his epistles. So Paul likes to build this huge view of God before he gets to the application of our lives. Right? We see this in Ephesians, in Galatians, and Colossians. We see this in Romans here. In the first 11 chapters, what Paul is doing, he's building up the doctrine and theology of who God is, his character, his nature, how he has revealed himself to us through his word and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. These first 11 chapters are just this beautiful passages of who God is and what he's done. Right, and then I would encourage you to, to read those chapters because then he closes that with these two verses before he gets into some practical application. He says, Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has seen his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And so what we see even in this pattern is Paul unpacks these beautiful truths in this long, really, sermon from Romans 1 to Romans 11. It ends with adoration. Before he gets into application, before he gets into, okay, how does this apply to our lives as believers? He is left adoring God. He's left adoring the plan of redemption that he lays out in these chapters. And it's no different for us today. I want us to see, and, and the reason I, I showed that Paul does this is so that we see it's not just theology, head knowledge, and then we go and do, but it is a heart inflamed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that then leads us to live our lives reflecting the gospel. And so, before we get into this passage, what I want to do is just, I want to ask the Lord to just bless this time. Uh, I'm, I'm like a little bit anxious. You guys didn't know anything that was going on with the live stream and stuff like that. Um, and, it, and so it frazzled me a little bit this morning. So what I want to do is, I just want to slow down. I'm going to ask the Lord to bless this time. And then we can jump into what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the mercies that have been lavished upon us as believers in Christ. Lord, that we have received redemption from our sins, reconciliation back to a holy and just and right God. And Lord, this, this truth that we have as sons and daughters, 
Lord, it then leads us to worship, which is ultimately our living sacrifice, the way we live our lives, in such a way that adores you and shows the glory of who you are to a dark and dying world. And so, Lord, this morning, help us see that through your word. Lord, we ask you as, as Lord that is over our lives, that you would show us more of who you are in your scriptures and that it would bring joy and adoration and ultimately, Lord, it would, it would transform our minds so that we reflect on the things of you and we live in such a way that brings glory to your name. Thank you for this great mercy and great grace you show us in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to walk through this passage. We're going to verse by verse and, and just see what Paul has to say in light of how Jesus being our motivation happens. Okay, so from the text, you're going to see four things that I want to highlight this morning. So how this motivation happens is through mercy, is through worship, is through renewal, and is through the body of Christ or the church. Okay, so mercy, worship, renewal, and the church. So first verse, Paul writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So I want to stop right there. And here in Romans, what we find is Paul writing and concluding this giant thought that we just talked about in, Paul, in, in, in Romans 1 through 11, about the glories of God, about the weight of sin, about his divine election of sinners like you and me, and about God grafting Gentiles and Jews alike together in reconciliation to himself. All of this theology was written so that our minds then would be renewed and our lives would be transformed by this beautiful gospel. He then leads us to this understanding that we are saved by the mercies of God. But I want to stop real quick because anytime you see this phrase, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, or not even just a phrase, anytime you see this word, therefore, what are we supposed to do? Does anybody remember? We're supposed to, yes, we're supposed to ask, what is therefore, therefore? And this is what Paul's getting us to do. He's trying to get us to slow down and even remember all that he taught in Romans 1 through 11. What is therefore, therefore? And what he says here is this, all of this truth that you find here, all of this doctrine is supposed to help renew our minds and transform the way we live so that our lives are holy and acceptable to God, which is worship. It is putting God on display in our lives. It is showing that God is good and glorious, that He is our treasures. John Piper goes on to say, the aim of the Christian life is that God in Christ be displayed as infinitely valuable. And so when our lives, when our lives displays this worship, Right? When our lives display this transforming and renewing of our minds, we show God is invaluable over all of the things in this world. Whether it is our jobs, our security, our family, our possessions, all that we have, God is shown more valuable when we treasure Him. Paul is saying, if this is who God is, if this is his nature, if this is his character, if this is how we see him from the scriptures, 
then our lives, in light of this truth, this is the way we should live. Chapters 1 through 11 give us this framework, right? Going back to that house example, the, the framework for the home, and then chapters 12 through 16 show us this practical outworking of these theological truths. So Paul is trying to get us to see all that I just talked about, therefore then leads to what we're going to talk about today, how we live our lives motivated by the gospel. But here again, he uses another phrase that gets us to slow down. He says, by the mercies of God. Paul is reminding us again, even after he spoke all these theological and doctrinal things in chapters 1 through 11, he again shows us, here is our motivation, the mercy of God. Paul exhorts or even pleads with us, as well as the Romans to whom he is writing to, that the way we live is founded on the tender mercies of what God has shown us. As H.P. Charles goes on to say, mercy is a one-word summary of the chapters that we see in Romans 1 through 11. Those first 11 chapters Paul talks about, I, I do want to make this brief because I, I think that we probably talked about those chapters and not really dove into a little bit of what they go on to say. So I'll give four points here that, that Paul br breaks down for Romans 1 through 11. He talks about our justification by faith. He talks about our sins being forgiven through the atonement of Christ. He talks about God working all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then Paul talks about God calling people to Himself. Sinners like you and me who would be declared sinful and unrighteous before God have now been made righteous before Him through His divine mercy and the work of of Jesus Christ. Not by anything that we've done, but by the finished work of Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. You see, other religions make a sacrifice the, the root of being accepted, right? Other religions will say, you need to do this in order for this God to be appeased. But the beauty of Christianity is that in Christ, sacrifice is more of a flower than the root. It's more of the, the crown in which we get to enjoy because we live for God as believers in gratitude, knowing that the mercies of Him who showed us this great grace has called us and saved us and redeemed us and reconciled us. That's why we sing that old hymn every once in a while, we're, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're a present small, far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So these mercies of God that Paul is writing about here should stir our affections up. What God has done for us in Christ should stir our affections, should bring adoration, and should motivate us to live in worship. So what does motivation start with? It starts with remembering, it starts with cherishing, it starts with adoring the mercy of God for sinners like you and me. That we were once far off, but God has drew, drew us near by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then that then flows into worship. So if you look at the second part of verse 1, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Worship is, for us, tends to be what we just did, right? We tend to think of worship as just coming in, singing songs, and then going out. Or maybe even worshiping in our car or worshiping on a run. And we just equate worship to music. But what Paul is saying here is that our lives should be a living sacrifice, which is our worship of God. Ultimately, how we reflect what we've learned and what we believe about the mercies of God should be our worship, should be what we reflect to the world around us. As 2 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And if you've been here long enough and, and heard me read that verse before, I always followed up with this, that we have been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light to take that marvelous light back into the darkness of this world and the darkness that is surrounding us. That, that is what we are called and motivated by the gospel to do. That is our living sacrifice. That is our worship because we understand what God has done for us in Christ. So, taking a look at that phrase, living sacrifice, the picture Paul is painting here, and what he's trying to help us do, is think about the Old Testament and the sacrificial system of worship in the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, sacrificial worship was based on death and blood. And it was established on sacrifice. You see, there were two kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament, atonement and thanksgiving. And that system required both death and blood of bulls and goats and other, plenty of the other animals. It was a bloody system. And I apologize, Greg, I know your kids are in here. I've just got to say it. <laughs> in the Old Testament, though, there was a day in which atonement happened. It's called the Day of Atonement where Israel would bring a bull and a goat to the high priest, and what he would do was he would kill those animals. And then they would have a second animal, which would be one in which they sent out into the wilderness and watched it run away. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, and what I hope this does is it stirs your uh, desire to go and read about how these Old Testament systems worked. But in this day of atonement, a priest would take these slaughtered bulls, these slaughtered goats, and they would take this blood and they would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, signifying blood being shed for the nation of Israel. And then with that goat being sent away, wandering in the wilderness, that represented the passing of sin and, and being sent as far as the east is from the west. And so these sacrificial atonements would ultimately be salvation for that year or that time period in which the Israelites would be repenting of sin and bringing it to the priests. But the problem, as Hebrews 10 begins to show us, is it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. These sacrificial systems were never meant to actually remove sin fully. But what they did is they revealed that there was an issue and that they revealed that something greater was to come. And ultimately, that greater that was to come was Jesus and His work of atonement on the cross. Because as believers in Christ, we no longer have to make atoning sacrifices 
to God because Jesus has paid it all for us. However, God does still call us to a sacrifice. And He calls us to the sacrifice of thanksgiving and gratitude. And this is what we offer in worship. Because it's the offering of our very lives based on what God has done for us in Christ. This is what Paul means when he says that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, some of you may have grown up in church like myself. You read this passage or you're familiar with it, and it doesn't cause you to slow down like for a while, me. It didn't cause me to slow down and think of the oxymoron of a living sacrifice. Right? Did anybody pick up on that? Because typically, a sacrifice is only a sacrifice when it is slain, right? But God doesn't want dead bodies. He doesn't want dead carcasses to be worshiping Him. What God wants is a living sacrifice. The problem, though, as one pastor put it, is a living sacrifice is prone to crawl off the altar, very much like ourselves. When we crawl off the altar of worship, we have to be reminded and we have to be placed back up there. We have to put ourselves back up there in a place in which we are living lives of worship. But in light of the mercies of God, we should be living this way. We should be living a life of worship. This is the example that Jesus gives us. You see, He could have asked for the Father to remove Him off the cross. He could have asked God to send legions of angels to remove Him. He could have chosen to not take the nails. But what did He do? He died on the cross for our sins and He rose from the grave to be our living sacrifice. And this is the life that we must follow. This is the example that motivates us to live in such a way that our lives are worship. So how do we live in such a way that this happens? Verse 2 tells us. He tells us by two words, transform and renew. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul is writing to the Roman church. And if you're familiar with what was going on during the time in which the Romans were ruling, and the church in Rome was practicing their faith, living out what they were called to do and, and worshiping for the Lord, the culture in which they lived in was very much like this. Rome was a tolerant culture. You could believe what you wanted. You could worship how you wanted. You could pretty much do what you wanted to do as long as you didn't claim that you had one absolute truth. You could do whatever you wanted as long as you didn't upset the government and you didn't say things that were offensive or that didn't cause headaches. In Rome, if you upset the order, you, or if you upset the government, upset the order, upset the government, created headaches, created riots, whatever it might be in which now the government had to step in, they didn't just call you mean names. They didn't just cancel you. What they did do is they dipped you in lighter fluid or oil and used you as lamps. They sewed you in bags and gave you to lions. Paul is 
talking to a persecuted church who was called to not live a way in which they would not preach this gospel. He, he tells them to not be conformed to this world and just put your head down so that you don't cause any type of offense. What he's telling them is be transformed by the renewing of your mind and live a life in such a way that is rooted and founded in the gospel and it is going to be offensive. It is going to cause waves. It is going to get you persecuted. And as you continue down Romans 12, he gives a great hope for those who are enduring persecution. In fact, if we continue down the historical route for Rome, during that time, the emperor, who was Nero, considered himself an artist. He actually wanted to be an actor. And he wanted to rebuild Rome with this vision of art. And so what he did is he burned it down. And do you know who he blamed for burning the city down? He blamed the Christians. Because nobody in Rome actually liked the Christians because they held to absolute truth. The people didn't like them. The government didn't like them. And Paul is writing to these Christians to help them endure persecution and to not conform to just putting their head down and living in a tolerant culture. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform to this culture around you. Don't give in to the fear of persecution. Have hope. Endure. Trust and place your hope in the truth that we have in Christ. And what this means for us now as believers in Christ is that we are to be working from what we have already believed. In the mercies of God, we then are renewing our minds. Because as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So if we've been made new in Christ, and Paul is calling us to renew our minds, he is calling us to live and transform our minds in such a way that reflects the glory of God, and that reflects this new creation that we have. From the identity that we've been given, we seek to put to death and live in such a way that kills sin and brings about the glory of God. And as we do this, this brings us confirmation that we have been justified. That when we seek to put to death our old self, which is sanctification, it's, it's that understanding that we're being made into the image of Christ, when we seek to do this, we are confirming the justification that has happened to us. We are being sanctified. We're hoping in the glorification that is to come. But here's what I do want to say. Is if this is not happening in your life, what you may be revealing is that you don't understand the justification that you have, or you might not just be justified because you are content in your own sin. Because as Paul says, to be transformed means to change from in. It's an inward to outward change. This Greek word that we find for transformation is actually the word metamorphosis. Can anybody tell me where we would use this word nowadays? Maybe. Butterflies, yes. Caterpillars, right? When they are transformed, they, go, they undergo this order in which there is a metamorphosis to becoming a butterfly. 
It's actually used two other times in the New Testament talking about the same understanding. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. It's found in Matthew 17 and also in Mark 9, where Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, or actually goes up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he tells them to sit and wait, and, and then Jesus, as they're waiting, is transformed. But his body is still there, and the glory of his divinity starts to come through his natural body. This is the picture that Paul is trying to get us to see. That when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, our lives begin to change inward out. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So our call to be transformed is from inward out. What we believe should transform and renew what we then do in our lives, what we think about this world, how we engage with this world, so that we are showing the light of the gospel. But here's what I, here's what I want to caution us. And I've seen this a lot recently. The renewing of our minds does not mean that we, we neglect or bypass the mind that God has given us. Right? The renewing of our mind doesn't mean that we don't read or don't study or don't get wisdom with the world around us. If you remember, and I'll put it like this, if you remember Solomon, Ecclesiastes 12, at the end of his exhortation of how the believer's life is supposed to be, how in all of all the things that he's studied, the exhortation that he gives us is we are to read, we are to gain knowledge, we are to, to have an understanding of the things that are going on in this world, but through the lens of the gospel. So we can read different understandings of how sociology happens, psychology happens, uh, whatever it might be that you are encouraged by, or whatever it might be that will help you grow in your knowledge of how this world works. We can read, we can study those things. We have great theologians in the past who did all of this and still looked through the lens of God because it encouraged them and showed them more of who God is because as the Bible tells us, all truth is, in fact, God's truth. So don't be afraid of what you might not know, and therefore you won't study it because you don't know enough. Read, learn. But here's my encouragement. Read and learn through the light and lens of the gospel. Because many times, and, I, and I'll throw myself into this category, many times as believers what we can do is we can talk about a subject or we can hear somebody who we think is an expert on a subject and what we do is just regurgitate what they have to say without actually knowing their argument that they make. Augustine, who is one of those old theologians that I talked about, puts it like this. Reckless and incompetent expounders of Holy Scripture bring untold trouble and sorrow on their wiser brothers when they are caught in one of their mischievous false opinions and are taken to task by those who are not bound by the authority of our sacred book. 
For then, to defend their utterly foolish and obviously untrue statements, they will try to call upon Holy Scriptures for proof and even recite from memory many passages which they think support their position, although they understand neither what they say nor the things about which they make assertion. So what Augustine is saying here is that we, even though we fall back on the book, this great and holy scripture, we look foolish to the world when we don't have a knowledge about the things that are going on. Or when we believe conspiracy theories about different things and we go based on emotion. Or we go based on our aunt and what she said on Facebook. Or we go based on our favorite pastor and we regurgitate or become parrots of what they say without actually learning the topic at hand. And so it doesn't look good for us as believers and the world can laugh at us. And too many times we can make these assertions and have false opinions because we aren't doing the work of reading and studying and we get caught up in inappropriate arguments that aren't rooted in facts. And so what I want to encourage us is to not do that. Right? I'm pleading with you, don't get caught up in a culture that doesn't want to know both sides of the story, whatever the subject might be. And there are a lot of subjects that are running through my head right now, and I'm just going to leave it at a blank general statement. Because I think we are all aware that there are different topics that people can fall into in this problem. But in a world where we have hot takes, in a world where we lack wisdom and knowledge, and that seems to be the conforming pattern in which we have discussion, don't conform to that. Proverbs tells us this, On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Solomon goes also on to write in Proverbs 18, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Let us not conform to this pattern. Let us be wise. Let us read, let us study, let us understand both sides of a topic. And then we can have discussions. Then we can understand the arguments. And what's interesting is, and what I've noticed in life is, those who become experts in certain topics are more humble because they realize how much they actually don't know. And so we can have that humility. We should have that humility as believers in Christ. The second thing is the renewing of the mind leads to a way in which we live in this world that we're not conforming to the pattern of individualism. It's very interesting that Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, specifically to transform and renew, right? And the very next verse has to do with not viewing yourself too highly or too lowly. It's almost as if he's giving us an example of what we can tend to conform our lives to, the pattern of how we view ourselves, just like the world views itself. Look at verse 3. For, the, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. What are, what are ways in which we can live a life as believers not conforming to this world? by not thinking too highly of ourselves, 
and not thinking too lowly of ourselves, but also not living in such a way where we only think about ourselves. We live in a country that is riddled with individualism, right? If somebody steps on my toes, if somebody tells me not to do something, well, don't, don't tread on my freedoms. And this is not the pattern in which we should be living. Thinking more highly of ourselves and thinking or thinking correctly about ourselves is what Paul is calling us to do. That phrase sober judgment, if we translate it in the Greek, is, is just accurate. Thinking accurately about yourself. Tim Keller goes on to say about this verse, the world has a self-image of themselves based on this, based on effort. And we can fall into this pattern as well, that we view ourselves based on the effort that we give. I'm, in a, good, I'm a good person because I do this or I do that. We feel good about ourselves when we achieve what we said we would do. Or we feel bad about ourselves if we don't achieve what we've said we're going to do. And we can believe this lie that we are found only in, our identity is found only in our own effort. But the believer in Christ has a different way in which we view our self-image. The believer in Christ has a different way in which we are renewing our mind to view ourselves differently, and that is through the lens of Jesus Christ. We don't think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves because of what He has done for us. We don't think too highly because we understand that we were once sinners in need of a Savior to make us right with God in order to reconcile us back to Him. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 says, But now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. So we don't think too highly of ourselves because we remember who we once were before God saved us. This should humble us. This should lead us... In to live a life of gratitude and humility. But we also don't think too lowly of ourselves, right? Because we understand that God loved us enough to send His Son to die for us even in our sin, even when we were enemies to Him. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved us so much even in our lowly states. So we don't think too lowly of ourselves because of what He did for us. Our motivation for gospel formation is, is understanding these truths. And this is a part of how we re transform and renew our minds. But I want to show you another way in which we are motivated to gospel formation. And it's found through the church. It's found through gospel-centered community. God has designed a way in which we are to be transformed into the image of Christ by bringing other brothers and sisters around us. Look at verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in the proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, 
the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see what Paul says here is, how do we get away from individualism? Especially as believers, we get into gospel-centered community because we have gifts given to us and others have gifts given to them in which we come together and grow into the image of Christ. And God has designed this for us, that when we are a part of gospel-centered community, we help each other grow. Everyone has a part. The church is to help those believers to find their particular gifts so that we all can work together for the gospel and for the good of the church. That's why one of the reasons I love more people coming to the district church and becoming members is because everybody's bringing a unique gift, a unique talent, whatever it might be, to help me grow and to help those around them grow into the image of Christ. And here's the thing. Church isn't about being passive. Paul's exhortation here is to be active. You understand the gifts that you've been given to bless one another, and you are actively using them. Because you understand that the gifts you've been given, the gifts I've been given, is to help others grow into the image of Christ. Church isn't about being passive. It's not a hobby that we should just come to and hang out with. It's not one of those, and, and I know this is a thought that I've even had, so I, I, I repent of it now, but it's not one of those times in which we just come to refill ourselves and then we go and get drained in the world. That's not what church is about. Church is about the body of Christ coming together and helping each other become more like Christ. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, if we understand the gospel, then indifference and apathy are irrational responses when it comes to understanding the church. Everyone has a task. Everyone has a gift. And we are gifted for service. Go through that list again, what Paul says. We are gifted for service, whether it's prophecy, whether it's ministering to one another, whether it's teaching, whether it's exhortation, whether it's generosity, whether it's leading, whether it's mercy. This is what we've been gifted with in order that we can help our brothers and sisters become more like Christ. And the beauty is, we all have different functions, and our gifts differ from each other. Right? Paul uses the language of a body. Right? If we look at ourselves, right, an arm does something different than a hand. A foot does what a foot's supposed to do. A leg, a thigh, a brain. All of it functions together in order that we live and function in society. And in the same way, the church and its members and its brothers and sisters are gifted so that we can function together, most importantly, to be made into the image of Christ, but then so that we can grow the kingdom of God and His glory. And He is, as Piper said, put on display as invaluable. Just to kind of break this down for you, it's one of the reasons why in this church we have a plurality of elders. We want to practice this. I don't want to sit here and preach to you that this is how you should live, and we don't even practice it as your leaders. 
Because here's the reality for our church. And I'm going to use myself first and then I'll talk about Dwayne. <laughs> if it's just me, I, I know my weaknesses. I know that I'm slow to make decisions. Sometimes I view it as wisdom. Sometimes I'm just more nervous and anxious. It's just my personality. I, I want things to be black and white. But if it's just me, we also don't have vision. We probably don't even have partners. Because as much as I do love to preach and get up here, I'm an introvert. And to put me in a room to make me ask money for something I'm doing gives me anxiety. I'll do it, but I'm going to be anxious about it. Dwayne, if you've ever seen him in a room, he's um, we're here because of what he has done in the last couple of years, right? So these are my weaknesses. But if Dwayne, if it was just Dwayne, we'd have a lot of ideas and nothing would get accomplished. I love him to death and he has great vision and I'll follow him to the ends of the earth. But we work together because he's got vision and I want to come alongside and I want to fulfill that. Right? And this is what plurality of eldership looks like. And sure, we are, we are hopefully bringing another elder in but one of the reasons why we have such a weighty elder candidacy is because we want to make sure that whoever we bring into that room, one, is godly and is committed to this church, but also fits with us and our strengths and weaknesses. Because we know that our culture of our church starts with us. Whatever vision that we have, the culture of our elder room is going to trump that every time. And no church can be healthy without an understanding of the diverse gifts, personalities, cultures, and backgrounds that we come from. We can't be healthy without understanding and embracing that and being excited about the gifts God has given us to help us grow together. Now I know, even with this amount of people in this church, people that are watching I understand that there may be a hesitancy when it comes to service or when it comes to jumping in and being a part of the body or being a part of a local church. And it comes from, and, and I believe this is a, a healthy place, maybe it can be unhealthy, but I understand because of church hurt and because of church burnout, that can lead us to be weary about being involved. Or, or giving our lives completely over to a local church and being vulnerable enough to just say, I'm in. I understand that. If you were here last week, or if you get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, I, I understand that because I walked through that. I walked through that to a point where I didn't even know if I was going to be in ministry at all after it. I questioned whether or not I was called to ministry because of it. And so I get that. But I would challenge you, one, to understand that we are sinners. And when we walk into a church, you are walking into a room full of sinners. One of my old pastors used to say, if you find a perfect church, leave because you're going to ruin it. Right? Because we, we're all sinners. And we're going to hurt each other. Again, hurt people hurt people. That's not a... I'm not justifying what may have happened in the past to each and every one of us. 
But grace refreshes us, right? Love revives us. Kindness brings energy. And gospel-centered lives should invigorate us. But even, I would challenge you to read some of the New Testament, specifically the book of Philemon, where Paul challenges Philemon to forgive and receive Onesimus back into the church after he ran away even after he had sinned against him. It's a way in which that church is able to see the gospel and, and, and grace work in the life of Philemon because of what he believed. And if you've been hurt, remember that Jesus hasn't done you wrong. It was the sin of others. And again, that, that doesn't justify or that doesn't take away any of the pain but just like them, we are all a part of that. We are all sinners in need of some grace. And if you're feeling weary about the church because of these past hurts and past failures, I want you to think of this. Jesus shed His blood for the church. He died for her. And you're a part of that. And if you're thinking lightly of that, lightly of the fact that Jesus died for the church Himself, one, I'd ask you, not I wouldn't ask, I would call you to repentance. And to think of the church in the way that Jesus does. And to ask Him to help you love her more and to see her the way He does. Because gospel formation and the way that we are designed to be formed in the gospel, yes, is Jesus. But it's also to be a part of a body of Christ using your gifts, allowing them to use their gifts in your life so that you become more like Him. As the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect the gathering of the saints. God has designed this to work in such a way for our flourishing and our joy. So don't neglect that. I want to close the way that we do every single week. And it's the act of worship. It's the act of worship through communion. And this act of worship should be our motivation day in and day out, but it's also the motivation that we get to praise and celebrate on Sunday as we gather. It's the festival of the new covenant. It's a meal, as J.A. Metters in, in the book Gospel Formation, or Gospel Form puts, a meal of carb-loaded joy. Now don't worry, it's not going to add any real carbs to you, right? But it is a, a meal of carb-loaded joy, happiness. We are blessed because our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. As David said, blessed is the one whose sins have been forgiven. This is us. This is what we get to do. And we get to have joy and celebrate what Christ has done for us when we take communion. We are blessed. And Paul tells us, as we'll read in 1 Corinthians 11 in just a moment, when we take communion, it is a proclamation to those around us as well as to the world of the sacrifice that we have seen in Jesus. And it's the expectation of hope that He will one day return. So, communion should, yes, it should be under your chairs. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 11, and then we're going to celebrate the sacrifice together.
Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are remembering and we are proclaiming. Let us celebrate this morning. And I'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you've shown us. Thank you that as we celebrate communion this morning, it is a joyful feast that helps us look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That one day we will be gathered around a table with all the saints praising your name. Holy, 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 worthy is the Lord God Almighty who has redeemed us who has brought us back into the family of God by His death and resurrection. Lord, as we take communion this morning and as we remember what You have done for us, Lord, help us to help us to have hope and long for the day that You'll return. And help this hope lead us to live a life that is pursuing the gospel, pursuing the good news and sharing that good news with the dark and dying world around us. Lord, not only that, help it, help this truth, help this gospel truth to motivate us to be a part of our local body in such a way that we are giving of ourselves, that we are a living sacrifice to our brothers and sisters in Christ, because we understand that the gifts that have been given to us are not just for us, but for your bride. To help grow them, shape them, and mold them into the image of Christ. Lord, we see through your word that you've designed a way in which we are to grow, and a part of that is in gospel-centered community. So help us to take that serious. Help a fire within us to live this way passionately, joyfully, humbly, not thinking of ourselves too high or too low, but thinking of ourselves accurately in view of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at